The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 23 and 24. Whether to inspire the people of Nautilus into never being sick again, or to get publicity for his congressional campaign, Pickerbaugh organizes an overpowering health fair. It includes novelties ranging from demonstrations of the evils of alcohol, to instruction by the youngest Pickerbaugh twins on how to brush your teeth, and Martin in a bacteriology booth, playing with test tubes. Most stirring of all is the eugenic family, an example of the benefits of healthful practices. Sondalius was invited to attend, but alas, happened to be busy that week. The most unhappy participant is Martin, with his phony experimenting just for show. Leora, his demure assistant, spends the day giggling at his cursing. They and their new friend the fireman sneak away whenever they can to smoke in an alcove behind the model clean house. Things take a turn when a detective sergeant informs Pickerbaugh that the eugenic family are the Holtons, who have done time for selling liquor to the Indians and who can claim only one of the kids with them as their own. He offers to keep quiet and then, in an entirely separate thought, mentions that his nephew would make a great stenographer to a congressman. Then, on Saturday, all hell breaks loose. During a demonstration of perfect vigor, the youngest daughter of the eugenics family has an epileptic fit. The anti-nicotine lady, who is doing demonstrations on live mice, is physically assaulted by an anti-vivisection lady. And then, the extremely varnished clean house catches fire. Almus Pickerbaugh ushers people to safety, and in the last week of his campaign, his health fair makes him a hero. The two-fisted fight in dock dashes about holding enormous meetings where he proclaims vague policies. Meanwhile, Pickerbaugh commends Pew for mayor of Nautilus and tells Pew to appoint Aerosmith in his place. Pickerbaugh is elected to Congress, and Martin realizes that he is now effectively the new Director of Public Health. Orchid complains that Martin doesn't care a bit that she has to go to Washington. And under her spell, he again, walking home, begins dreaming of her eyes. Leora sees it, and she says she sincerely sympathizes, as long as he never sees her again. When Pickerbaugh resigns as director, Martin's appointment in his place is vigorously opposed by Klopchuk the Dairyman, Waters and his fellow doctors, and F.X. Jordan, who has his own candidate in mind. But Treadgold and the Ashford Grove group get it done, Martin overlooking the fact that he has been promoted through crooked politics. As Pickerbaugh leaves for Washington, making his sentimental goodbyes, Martin says he's a fine old boy, and then stops himself, saying, No, I'm hanged if he is. The world's always letting people get away with asininities because they're kind-hearted. It's a good line. Under the leadership of Martin, inspections become more thorough, vital statistics become more than a record of births and deaths, and he and his assistant find themselves with a lot of downtime since they don't spend the time Pickerbaugh did in being eloquent. 
Waters begins complaining again that the expansion of free clinics threatens private practice, and Martin tells him roundly that he can go to hell. Tinkering in the lab, Martin makes an accidental discovery concerning the production of hemolysin, or hemolysin, depending on what pronunciation authority you consult. I think I've been inconsistent. And he becomes obsessed with his research. Mayor Pugh criticizes him for wasting his time in the lab when he ought to be getting out talking to churches and clubs, a la Pickerbaugh. Martin is in doubt about whether he is even really on to something, and about whether he is justified in using the taxpayer's money to find out. Pugh isn't the only one he alienates. When Martin traces a map of the local tuberculosis cases to a tenement building owned by a woman named McCandless, a hired girl associated with contractor and politician F.X. Jordan, he seeks a court decision to have it demolished. Martin gets it done, and Jordan vows revenge. And when Martin chooses to spend his nights in the lab rather than gallivanting with the Ashford Grove set, Treadgold withdraws his loyalty and begins attacking Martin behind his back as a narrow-minded young man. Community sentiment follows, and the citizens lose all faith in Martin. Mayor Pugh suggests he might save trouble by just resigning, but Martin refuses. He decides his unpopularity isn't the fault of Pugh or Jordan or Treadgold, but his own, because he lacks Pickerbaugh's ability to soft-soap the people. He calls on the help of Pickerbaugh himself, who vowed to drop everything and come running if ever he was needed. Apparently, not everything, because he writes to say that he cannot possibly get away from Washington. When Martin travels to Chicago to meet with the editor of a journal about the publication of his paper on streptolysin research, he meets with Angus Dewar, who is working there at the Rouncefield Clinic. Dewar suggests Martin could come join them at the clinic as a pathologist. With this comfortable backup plan, Martin goes back to war with Pugh. But Pugh has a plan. If he can't get Martin to resign, he will simply use the discretion given to him to reduce his salary to $800 a year and force him out. Martin concedes failure, and he and Leora go to Chicago. After hearing the news, Pickerbaugh writes a bitter letter to Martin, criticizing him for his weakness, for his disloyalty, and for selling out. And Martin decides to become an all-out commercialist. The next of my posts was called H.L. Mencken and Sinclair Lewis. In my post about the origin of Aerosmith, I mentioned that Sinclair Lewis was introduced to Paul de Cruyff by H.L. Mencken. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was a very famous early 20th century journalist, satirist, and cultural critic. I know him best by proxy, through the character E.K. Hornbeck, in the wonderful play about the Scopes Monkey trial called Inherit the Wind. Hornbeck, I've been told, is a fictionalized Mencken. The character is played brilliantly by Gene Kelly in the 1960 film version of the play. If you haven't seen it, do. And if you haven't read it, well, maybe someday you could read it with me. I was curious to know more about the relationship between Mencken and Lewis, so I went digging. 
One of the first things I came up with was a fascinating article in the New York Times about the posthumous rantings of H.L. Mencken. Apparently, Mencken made arrangements for the publication of his diaries 35 years after his death, saying they would, quote, tell the plain truth, regardless of tender feelings, unquote. Here is what he had to say in his diaries about Sinclair Lewis. Quote, All the while I knew Sinclair Lewis, he was either a drunkard or a teetotaler. So my relations with him never became what could be called intimate, for I am ill at ease with any man who is either. I saw most of him during the first eleven years of our acquaintance, from 1920 to 1931, and at times got a reasonable amount of pleasure out of his society, for he was an acute observer of types and an excellent mimic and some of the imitations that he liked to give in company were really excellent." Unquote. As an aside, this reminded me of Martin's imitations of Pickerbaugh at the Ashford Grove parties. Continuing Mencken's comments, quote, Moreover, the study of his psyche entertained me, for I learned at a very early stage that he was consumed by an inferiority complex— and it amused me to observe his innocent delight in the praise of persons far beneath him in intelligence and ability, and his abject subservience to his wife, Grace Heger." Unquote. This might not shed much direct light on Aerosmith, but it's just plain fascinating. I've linked to the article titled, Mencken, Dead, Has More to Say, in the Facebook group. It's worth reading especially, I think, for his verdict of James Joyce's Ulysses, which he describes as deliberately mystifying and mainly puerile, and which he conjectures was meant as a vengeful hoax. Ulysses, for the record, isn't one I'll be asking you to read with me. The last of my posts was called To Truth. I admit it, I'm a bit worn down again. At every turn, Martin faces a new and petty enemy of truth. And there's one that stays with him wherever he goes, his own immaturity and weakness and self-doubt. I'm a willing partner on his journey, and I find value in understanding the immaturity and the weakness and the self-doubt. But at this moment, I need a hero. I need a champion of truth. So I'm going to bring my own and share them with you. Here are a few of my favorite literary champions of truth. Atticus, in To Kill a Mockingbird, quote, The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience, unquote. Antigone, from Antigone, quote, It is not right if I am wrong, but if I am young and right, what does my age matter, unquote and Hymen from Antigone, quote, Do not believe that you alone can be right. The man who thinks that, the man who maintains that only he has the power to reason correctly, the gift to speak, the soul, a man like that, when you know him, turns out empty, unquote. Juror 8 in Twelve Angry Men, quote, it's always difficult to keep personal prejudice out of a thing like this. And wherever you run into it, prejudice always obscures the truth. Unquote. 
Dr. Stockman, in An Enemy of the People. Quote, I'm in revolt against the lie that truth is always vested in the majority. Unquote. And, quote, the strongest man in the world is he who stands most alone. Unquote. And, quote, you should never wear your best trousers when you go out to fight for freedom and truth. Unquote. Thomas More, from A Man for All Seasons. Quote, Will, I'd trust you with my life, but not your principles. You see, we speak of being anchored to our principles. But if the weather turns nasty, you up with an anchor and let it down where there's less wind and the fishing's better. And, look, we say, look, I'm anchored to my principles. Unquote. Man, that's so good. Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead. Quote, Why is it so important what others have done? Why does it become sacred by the mere fact of not being your own? Why is anyone and everyone right so long as it's not yourself? Why does the number of those others take the place of truth? Why is truth made a mere matter of arithmetic and only addition at that? Unquote. And Henry Drummond from Inherit the Wind. Quote, In a child's power to master the multiplication table, there is more sanctity than in all your shouted amens and holy holies and hosannas. An idea is a greater monument than a cathedral, and the advance of man's knowledge is a greater miracle than all the sticks turned to snakes or the parting of waters. Unquote. Do you have any favorite testimonies to the sanctity of truth? I'd love to hear them. They can help us weather Martin's struggles. <laughs>